I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, there might be a moment in the sermon where I hack up a lung, literally, or replay the first day of junior high. So if I do, I'm sorry. When we were in Cleburne, Texas, the house that I purchased had a few issues, um, mainly foundation issues. We had a foundation leak that caused thousands and thousands of dollars of damage. And we had had it fixed once, and then we found out the problem wasn't completely fixed and more needed to be done. And so we paid all of this money, probably about half of the value of the house between us and the insurance company trying to fix this house. And then after we had it fixed the second time, we decided we need to get out of here somehow, some way. And so we got the house fixed up and we put it on the market and we were thinking there is no way it's going to sell. And we had friends that would come up to us and say, well, what are you going to do when your house sells? And we said, well, it doesn't matter. It's probably not going to happen anyway. So we're not real worried about it. And then we got a phone call from our realtor and said, your house is under, has an offer. And we said, oh, okay, that's great. They said, here's the deal. It's for $2,000 less than you're asking. It's in cash, and you need to be out in two weeks. See, we were planning on this whole selling the house deal, getting a contract, and having a month or two to figure out what we were going to do before it actually closed. And so I had a friend who called me and said, hey, I've got the perfect opportunity for you. I have a place for you to live. It's only $400 a month. Now, knowing this friend who is a cheapskate, by the way, I thought there is no way I'm taking him up on that offer because I know where it's going to be for $400 a month. So he said, no, this is a great deal. My father-in-law just passed away and we need someone to take care of the house because we can't sell it because his wife is still in assisted living and receiving funding for it. You pay us $400 a month to cover the utilities and gas, and you live there rent-free. And it's on five acres. And it's a little smaller house, but you can just handle all the upkeep and take care of it, and it's practically free which is a pretty good deal. And so we said, we got it, we'll take it. And what we were moving into was considerably smaller than where we came from. But there was no upkeep cost for us. There was no rent. There was a lot more space outside for our kids to play and for us to run around and have fun together. There were all these benefits. And what's interesting is with all the good, there were these moments along the way that we wished we could go back to where we were. Well, we liked the little bit bigger kitchen. Or we liked a little bit bigger bedroom or bathroom. And the, there were these little things about it that made us want to go back. 
And as the Hebrew writer is talking here, as he gets to the main point of his sermon, which really is 8, 9, and 10, is he's really trying to make them understand there is a group of people who is seeing something better in Jesus. A better tabernacle. Now a better sacrifice. But still, with what is better, there is this inclination, this longing to go back to the way things were. Because there, there is comfort. There is some, some peace of mind with the way things work, with the, things, with the way that they operate. And, and I think the reason why is because there's a problem that all of us have to learn how to deal with. And it's guilt. Guilt is a pretty big problem in our life at times. And I think there's two sides to guilt. I think guilt could best be described as the swampland of the soul. If you ever get into a swamp, it's probably pretty important to realize that I'm in a swamp. Because there's things there that can happen in a swamp that probably cannot happen anywhere else. There are creatures and animals you're going to find there that you might not find any other place that can devour you, that can tear you up. Once you realize you're there, that is the first step. The second step is getting out of there and leaving it behind you. The the second step is, is removing yourself. And I think there's two sides when we talk about guilt. There is a very good and healthy side, but there's also a second side that is unhealthy and destructive and that begins to tear you apart. That first side that's good and healthy, I think, is the role the Spirit plays in our life. And I think it's the most important role the Spirit probably plays. He he convicts us when we see something in our life that is not right, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. The Spirit comes in and He convicts us and He wants us to change and pull us toward this new life. David commits this incredible sin with Bathsheba and he gets her pregnant. But then he compounds the sin and he finds himself deceiving and lying and murdering the husband of Bathsheba. And the prophet Nathan, I think with the spirit at work in his life and in David's life, comes up to him and he talks to him and he says, this should not be. And David pours out this incredible psalm that we know because we sing it. And David says, create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me and restore to me the joy of your salvation. David prays this very earnest prayer as the Spirit convicts him. But the beautiful thing about grace is it offers you the chance to move on. It offers you the chance to leave where you were knowing you're forgiven and to leave it behind you. And it's possible to find yourself in one place, still thinking about the place that you used to be. It's possible to be in one place physically 
and be in an entirely different place mentally. It's possible to have a conversation with someone and ask for forgiveness. And they offer you forgiveness, and then you find yourself the very next day not in the presence of that person replaying the conversation, thinking about it, and dwelling on it. And the the good and healthy side of, of guilt convicts us. The unhealthy side leaves us in this destructive place that tears you apart and that will rip your life apart. And I think the reason we stay there is because what guilt creates. Guilt, by its very nature, creates this debt-to-debtor relationship. It creates a debt-to-debtor relationship. And a debtor says to the person they are indebted to, I owe you. I owe you. I have done something wrong, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to hurt you or to harm you, and I owe you. I need to be able to pay you back. I feel like I have to do something to give back to you. I have to do something to make it right. When I was in middle school, I was born and raised in Garland, Texas, On the playgrounds is where I spent most of my days, chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool. And shooting some b-ball outside of the school. And there were a couple of guys who came up to me while I was standing with one of my friends named Arthur. Arthur Moncrief. And Arthur talked with a lisp, which kind of set him up and made him an easy target for people. And so all of a sudden, I I was always nice to Arthur, but then my friends came up on the playground, and they started ridiculing Arthur. And they're saying, Arthur, you're, you're a little girl. Arthur, you talk like a little girl. Arthur, you're a sissy. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, this is not happening on my watch. So I stand up and I say in the the group, you guys don't talk about him like that. And then the ridicule turned from Arthur to me. And it became, well, Gary's just in love with Arthur. Now, in fifth grade, those are pretty harsh words. And and when all the attention turns to you, you need to do something. And so I looked at Arthur, and I said, Arthur, they're right. You're a little girl. And I went home that night, and you talk about guilt. Oh, I felt horrible. And I thought, well, tomorrow I'm going to get to school, and I'm going to go up to Arthur. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to tell him I'm sorry. And he's going to say, okay, it's, it's all good. It's, everything's all right. And I got there, and I found Arthur in the hallway that morning. I said, hey, Arthur, i got to talk to you, man. I am so sorry yesterday about what I said and the fact that I did not stand up to you for you. And he looks at me, and he said, I'm sorry. It's too late. 
I, I still remember watching his face. I had another friend who had an affair on his wife. And through all this, it comes out, and the, the marriage seems to be wrecked. And the guy starts taking his wife flowers. He starts bringing gifts, showing up and saying, I'm sorry. And he said, no matter what I did, it couldn't fix the way things were. No, no matter what I did, it could not take away what I did. Now, I want you to listen to the writer in Hebrews here. He says this, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ came as the high priest, as the priest of the good things that now are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of bull of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of heifers, were sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that, so that they were outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? And then skipping down to the start of chapter 10, he says this, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the Israelites themselves. For this reason... It can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not stop, have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. There's this very practical side of what he is saying. There is nothing you can do or give to take away what you have done. There is no, no thing that you can say or do that can take back what I said to Arthur. There, there is nothing you can do or say that would take away the affair. There, there is nothing that you can do or say to make it right with your child for the 18 years you were absent in their life. There is nothing you can do. There's this really practical side of what he is saying. There is nothing you can offer that would make what you did right. And the people saw the system as a way for them to say, God, I owe you, and here is my payment. Because they're in this debt-to-debtor relationship. 
And so there's this sacrificial system where we bring these offerings and we offer them and now we've paid what we owe. We've done what we were supposed to. We presented this offering. Now we have paid for what we have done. And what Hebrews, the preacher, wants you to know is there's nothing you can pay for what you have done. You cannot take it away. See, the people saw the purpose as penance. But God was calling the people to repentance. And there is a great difference. Penance is payment. It's here is what I owe you. I am giving it to you. Repentance is here is what I've done. I am refusing to live this way any longer. And I'm going to turn and go a new direction. The people saw the purpose as penance. And God, the whole time, was calling them to repentance. Calling the people out of their old ways and into this new life. See, the system was based around the tabernacle where the people came to encounter God. That they would come to this place and the tabernacle was the place where divinity and humanity met. They came face to face with God. It was their opportunity to connect with the divine. And so they would come with their sacrifices. They would come with their offerings. And they would present them. And in their mind, it was paying for what they did. I think in their mind, it was clearing their conscience. And it was never supposed to. In their mind, they were thinking, this right here is what God desires. This is what God wants from me. And God is saying, no, what I want from you is my people to be formed in my image and transformed through their life. That is what I am calling you to. You see, it's possible to place hope in a system and think that the system is forgiving you when the system was never designed to forgive you but to form you. See, we're offering these, God, we're offering them to you because this is what you need. This is what you want from us. And he's confronting the system. Because there was this holy place where God dwelled in the most holy place that only the high priest could enter. And and think about this. If you are the high priest, you're the only one who can go into this place. And they spent months preparing for this day, getting everything right, making sure that I am okay to be in the presence of Almighty God, this holy, divine, life-giving God. And I get to enter into his presence. And so they would prepare, and they would prepare, and they even tied a little bell around the bottom of his robe and tied a rope to his foot just in case God struck him dead in the Holy of Holies that they could pull him out. And they prepared, and they prepared, and they prepared to be in God's presence. And what Hebrews wants you to know is that God's presence has left the temple. It's not in the most holy place, this physical dwelling place. It is now inside of you. You, every single day, are in the presence of God. 
This is not the temple. This is not the tabernacle. You did not come here to meet God in this place. God is in you. You are the new tabernacle. You are the place that God dwells. And I just have to ask, are you every single day preparing yourself to enter his presence? As you wake up in the morning, is it the very first thing that's on your mind? As you go to bed at night, is it the very last thing that you think about? I live in the presence of God, not because I'm entering a place, but because God has left that place and now dwells within me. Do you think about that? Do you realize the magnitude that this holy and righteous God now lives inside of you? And as we come here, we come not to worship, we come worshiping. Every single minute of every single day that it's supposed to consume every bit of you. This temple, this tabernacle was just a shadow. And he keeps saying that. That it's just a shadow of what is to come. See, a shadow is a dark image cast on the ground by a body that is intercepting the light. You, you can make a shadow kind of here on the wall from the lights that are pointed at the stage. You can see the shadow. Because the shadow is intercepting the light. And if you go outside of this place, what causes a shadow is something intercepting the light of the sun. And this temple had the sun that would rise every morning, I'm sure, for the first temple and the second temple, the, the sun rose over the city of Jerusalem, and it cast this shadow across the city. And even though you were not in the temple, you could see that the temple was there. You could see its shadow until the point of the day where the sun reached its pinnacle. And when the sun reached its pinnacle, it was covering the tabernacle with the radiant light it produced. And so he points to the cross and he said, there's this moment outside of the city on a hill where a man is raised and his shadow is cast over the earth. And as he dies, darkness comes and no longer is there a shadow. But now, we will experience the full radiance of the light of the sun. That the tabernacle was just pointing to something. It was just showing what was to come. It wasn't actually what God wanted them to see. It was just merely pointing to it. And so he says, as he continues to look at Jeremiah 31 this incredible passage that he's been talking about for the last three chapters. And he says this, Sacrifice and offering you did, not you did not desire, but a body prepared for me. 
with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. Sacrifices and offerings you didn't desire. And you read that and you think, wait, wait, I've read the Old Testament. I know that God told them to do this. I know that they were supposed to offer these things daily and monthly and yearly, that this was part of their worship. This was part of them being right with God. And then Jeremiah comes along and says, that was never what I desired. That, that wasn't what God was asking for. And we, we think, well, where, where is the disconnect? See, I think the people saw this as payment when it was never supposed to be God, here is what we owe you. As we bring gifts and offerings to Christ, we do not bring it because he needs it. We bring it because deep down we need to give it. See, the sacrifices they looked at is forgiving them were really meant to form them. And it's possible to come into this place week after week thinking that this is our offering so that God will be pleased with us. And God says, no, this was not for me. This was to form you. You see, you are forgiven not because of what you bring. You are forgiven simply because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross and for no other reason. Now, let me ask you a question. If you grew up in a system where constantly you were having to bring these sacrifices and offerings, thinking this is making me right with God. And someone comes along and says, no, 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 no. I know you've been doing that every single day of your life. But now Jesus has given this sacrifice once and for all, and you no longer have to bring yours. Do you think that might mess with your mind? Do you think it might be difficult to leave the system behind because in the system you found forgiveness, but the system was really meant to form you? It was really meant to change who you are on the inside because Christ has forgiven you. Because God has said, I no longer hold your sins against you. He continued on in verse 16. The covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. See, the problem comes when guilt and grace intersect. Because guilt and grace both give us this feeling of we owe something. 
When, when someone gives you something that you don't think you deserved, do you ever feel the sense of pride that says, well, I need to pay that back? Someone gives you a really nice gift, and the first thing that we typically think is, I don't deserve this, and now I owe them. And these people who were stuck in this system, this was the way they were cleansing their, they were clearing their conscience. This was their way they were getting rid of their guilt. They were bringing these gifts to God saying, here, we've, we've paid you what we owe See, there's this desire to go back to the house that you just moved out of. We, we understand we moved out. We understand what Jesus did. But we want to go back because there is something in our mind that lets us feel like, something in our heart that lets us feel like we're forgiven. Like we're set free from our past and that what we did is not there. But here's the deal. It's still there. And the only way for it to not be there is for it to be forgiven. That's why offering forgiveness is so difficult for us. Because we feel like someone owes us. And they need to repay us. And here's the deal. They can't. No matter what they do, no matter what they say, they cannot take it back. The only thing they can do is ask and receive forgiveness. So the question that I've always had is why the blood Why is the blood so important? In fact, the writer says this, the preacher says this. In fact, verse 22 of chapter 9, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why the blood? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, we learn in Leviticus, for the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So, so the first reason that the blood is so necessary is the blood is the life of a creature. That anything that is alive has this blood pumping through it. And where you have sin, you also have death. The, the, the result of sin, we learn in Genesis, we learn in Romans, the result of sin is death. And where there is death, blood is spilled. That the blood that gives life is poured out. And so there's the very first and most practical, here's why the blood is necessary, because it's the life, it represents the life, and it's poured out. The, the second reason, excuse me, the 
sorry. <laughs> the second reason, going to chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. He says this, In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is only in force when someone has died. It, is ne- it never takes effect while the one who made it is still living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. So there's this, this really practical side of this that he says, and there's two places in the entire New Testament and Old Testament in Greek where will is used here. The only two times this word is translated this way. The rest of the time in Scripture, it's translated covenant. He's saying this covenant is not actually enacted. It's not the, the reality until the one who made it has died. And until that one, if you have the rich uncle, you're, you're praying for him to die because you don't like him. I'm joking. Okay, not funny, sorry. <laughs> you have someone who dies, and then their will goes into effect. All the things that they promised. And we have this this new world that Jeremiah has promised with the new covenant. This new covenant where he says, I will make with him after the time. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. That, That when I die, There's going to be this new world. And in this new world, my law, my covenant is going to be written on the people's hearts and on their minds. And in this new world, they're going to sin, and they're not going to bring these offerings that they think are making them right so that they forgive. I'm just going to forgive. And the question then becomes, will you actually accept that forgiveness? Or... Will you continue to try week after week, year after year, to pay what you feel you owe? Or or will you have enough trust that the blood that was offered was not the representative blood of bulls and goats. But it was the blood of the promise keeper himself. The covenant maker. Who offered this sacrifice so that you and I could be with him. See, I think if that were the case, you might say something like, now faith 
is being certain of what you hope for and sure of what you did not or do not see. See, it's difficult to put your life, to put everything you've done in someone's hand. And them say, I forgive you. And you not walk away feeling like I owe you. I owe you something. And Jesus says, my forgiveness is free. And this new world is formed by forgiveness. This new world is formed by forgiveness who is offered to all. Because this blood that was poured out was poured out once and for all. For anyone and everyone who would trust in his name. And we are this church that is formed by faith and repentance and baptism because we've walked through the water to join ourselves in his death, to cleanse ourselves with his blood to become a people forgiven of sin who goes into this world to forgive others of their sins. A forgiven community of sinners who have been set free. Because they are forming our world as we shape and form the world around us. The sacrifice is offered to you and you do not owe him anything He says, come and follow me. My grace is sufficient for you. Come and follow me. My grace is free. You are invited to come and trust me, and I will save you. And now go and live your life as children of the King who have been set free. You cannot pay it back. See, for me, that's so hard. Because I want to. In fact, I want to so badly that I will give my life trying to. Because I'm grateful for what he's done. But I do so not because I'm trying to earn it, but because I am grateful for what he's done. The the almighty God invites you every single day into his presence. Do not for a moment take that for granted. We come before him, and he loves us, and he heals us, 
and he forgives us. Father, we do come. Father, it's grateful, grateful people for what you've done. And Father, we trust you with all that we have and all that we are. Father, I pray that each of us in here would not see this time as something we bring to earn your favor. But Father, we come together to rejoice in what you have done for us. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Father, help us to take you at your word. We pray in his name. Amen. If you've never trusted in Jesus, we offer you the invitation this morning. If everyone would just be standing for a second, I'm going to invite our our shepherds and staff to go ahead and head to the back if you want to be standing. This morning, to simply lay your life down at the foot of the cross, to trust in him with all that you are, all that you have, and be set free. Allow God to forgive you. So if you need to come and be baptized, you can do that this morning. If we could pray for you wherever we are, we're going to have shepherds and staff around the auditorium. But whatever your need, come while we stand and we sing.